thinking a lot lately about sustaining our walk in the Lord. So I might start in Luke 13, and there's a short two-verse parable in verse 18. Under what is the kingdom of God like, and whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Sustaining our walk in the Lord, it requires confidence, and one of the best ways of having confidence is to have genuine God-felt or, you know, humility. Now, the confidence, I'm talking about the confidence we have in the Word of God, in the seed of God. So, the seed of God's been planted, this seed is likened to a mustard seed, and if we cross-reference this to the parable of the seed and the sower, where this seed is placed in good soil, a little seed becomes a great tree. Now, what that means is that when we sow the Word of God, when we are talking to each other about the Word of God, when we're reading it and praying over it, we don't necessarily see the full consequences of the prayer, the full consequences of the conversation we're having with somebody today. But if we reflect back, we can think in our own life about how quietly the seed of God was working away from the first time we heard it. We read in scripture that it's given to some people or sometimes we're sowing the seed for the first time. Sometimes we're watering it. Sometimes we're planting. And in the fullness of time, God will give the increase. Now, God will always give the increase where there's good soil. That means where there's a good heart. The parable of the sower and the seed is talking to us about the heart of man, mankind. And so we can have confidence in the power of God's word, in the power of his seed. Now, think about the beginning of the first church. Like, I know it started on the day of Pentecost, and I know it started with a bang, 120 men and women receiving the Holy Ghost. And so let's just reflect just very briefly on that story. I dare say all of those 120 had been with Jesus for part, if not most, of his three and a half years of ministry on earth. So they knew, firstly, they knew Jesus. Now, whether they understood that Jesus was the word of God or not, it's hard to say, I guess, but he told them that he was the word of God. He told them that. And they knew that he died. And they didn't understand at that time when he died, why he died. They didn't like it. Because like everybody else, they were looking for deliverance. And he's, he's telling them, I'm your Messiah. I'm the Christ. Well, a Messiah shouldn't die. Like, how can you be my Messiah if you die? Now, we read in further in the book of Acts, where the apostles, basically, if you read through the book of Acts, they largely preached two things. One, repentance towards God and two, faith in Jesus Christ. Now, faith in Jesus Christ means a darn sight more than just, I believe in Jesus Christ. It means faith in his accomplished work at Calvary. Now, if you want to fully understand or reflect upon his accomplished work at Calvary, I suggest you go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. But amongst the other things that he accomplished at Calvary, he put an end to sin and he put an end to the transgression. To use a, a metaphor, a picture, 
at Calvary, Jesus grabbed sin and sickness and death by the neck and dragged it down into the tomb with him. But when they came to anoint his body a, few da a day or so later, he wasn't there in the tomb. He'd risen. But when he rose, he didn't bring back sickness and death and sin. He had destroyed their power once and for all. As, as, we, as we walk on in the Lord and as we want to maintain our walk in the Lord, the Apostle John writes to us in Revelation about keeping your first love. So what's, what's our first love? Well, maybe to a certain degree, it's different things to different people, but this is some of what it is. It's knowing that I've been washed. That was sensational. Like I wasn't religious personally, but when, when I heard the story that Jesus is alive, and I was challenged with that possibility that he would demonstrate his life to me through his spirit. And that if I had an attitude of repentance, which was now, now let's, I'm, I'm jumping all over the place, but firstly, repentance. I didn't think in terms of repentance because I didn't think in terms of Christian terms. I'd never seen a Bible, but I implicitly understood if what these people are talking to me about is a Christian, well, I'm not one of them. Now, the repentance comes in when I ask myself the question, but are you interested in finding out whether there's any truth in this? And the answer to that question was, well, yes. If it's true, I need to know. Now, implicit in that was, in my mortality, in my humanity, there's nothing I can do to fix myself. I wasn't religious, as I've already said, so I didn't think in terms of sin. I didn't think in terms of heaven or hell or any of those sort of things. But I knew deep down there was some sort of fracture running through me from head to toe. I didn't let it bother me because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where it came from and I didn't know what to do about it, so I didn't think about it. But I knew it was there. The night I received the Holy Ghost with that wonderful gift, that prayer language of praying in tongues, the first thing I knew, the first thing was that fracture's gone. That split running through me is gone. And I emerged from those few minutes of prayer with a confidence that I never thought possible, but I still had doubt because I had had moments of enlightenment through psychedelic drugs during my years at uni. But I knew something about the psychedelics was, come morning, it's over. Come morning, you're right back where you were. And so I thought to myself, well, let's see what morning brings. And morning brought that there was no change. Whatever had happened to me that night, whatever had come into my very soul that night was still there. And I knew I belonged. And for the next... 40 plus years I've been discovering what it is I belong to. I belong to the body of Christ. But that night I was washed. Now sometimes as we grow older in the Lord, we trade the excitement of having been washed. In 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse I think 24, it says, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Now, I'm going to come back to that verse. But sometimes as we walk on in the Lord, I fancy that we can trade the excitement of being washed and sanctified and justified. We can trade that with being right. Because what happens is he, 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 gets, he, gets, he gets saved by Jesus through the Spirit in the name of Jesus. And you want to tell the world, like, did anybody else want to, like, I was the black sheep of our little family. And so I just assumed, I've responded, they're, they're a shoo-in. They're going to love this. And I found out it doesn't always work like that. Not that our family was wrecked because of my zeal, but I had to moderate my zeal with a bit of wisdom in the ensuing months. And the influence of this good thing that I'd received became a good influence in my family. Even the part of my family that never received, never got saved, it still became a good influence in their life, let alone them that did get saved. And then we talk to people at work, we talk to workmates, we talk to neighbours, and we learn the scriptures, many are called but few are chosen. And sometimes we can start taking refuge behind the fact that somebody gave us good doctrine, good teaching, and we know that the gospel is well summarized by John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but will have eternal life. If you really believe in the power of Jesus Christ, if you, if you admit the possibility that Jesus is alive, he will lead you to salvation. That's not the same as saying the sinner's prayer and therefore, you know, I've said the words and I'll tell you I believe. No, this is, if, if we really believe in the possibilities of Calvary, we'll be brought to the point of salvation. And for a Christian, our task is to hold on to that and be bold in our preaching in the confidence that we don't have to prove anything to anybody. You know, if you're the winner of the 1500 meter race at the Olympics, you don't have to boast about it. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to anybody. Why? Because it's on the board for all time. First place. Whatever games it was. If you've been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, we, we don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to demonstrate our rightness. It's better for us to remember the thrill, the first love of being washed, of being sanctified and being justified. In Acts chapter 18, I just want to move on. I'm sort of going to wander all over the place. No, I'm not. I'm going to go to Galatians chapter 4 first. Verse 19. Now, this, this issue of Christians growing to maturity and not reverting to what I'm going to say, frankly, a carnal habits. They're old habits of justifying ourselves by being right. They're bad habits. And they're unnecessary and they, and they hold us back. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says, 
verse 18, 19, it is a good thing to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. So Paul's sort of commending their zeal. But then he goes on to say, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. This is, to use the modern speak, this is the, the journey of every Christian that Christ be formed in us. That's the goal of God for us. Somebody preached repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we spend a lot of try time trying to make things happen. I'll give you an example. Now, this is just uh, a personal heresy. Pastor Tim's he's dozed off, so he won't hear it. And you can turn the zoom off up there, Mark, just for the minute. But I fancy that, you know, the Pentecostal movement and our fellowship in particular was having a real growth spurt in the 19, late 60s, 70s and 80s. And I think sometimes we fancy that, you know, we had our act together then. We knew what we were doing. We were evangelistic and we were setting the world on fire. And I think we're kidding ourselves. I think what was really happening was the wind was blowing. John chapter 3 or 4. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, thou canst not tell from whence it comes, nor where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit, right? True. That's about my rebirth, my spiritual rebirth when I'm born again. As a new creature in Christ, by being filled with the Holy Ghost, with the Bible evidence and the wonderful power of this prayer language of tongues, miraculous healings. But I think it describes more than that. I think it describes the nature of my life in the Lord, that the Spirit has a will for my life. I believe God lets me make the decisions about what I want to do with my life, what sort of work I want to do, whether I want to be married, stay single, whatever. But I think beyond all that and behind all that, he has an overriding will for my life. And that will for my life is that, that his son Christ would, would really form strongly in me so that I would eventually exude more of Christ than less of me. And the reason that that's God's will is that the more that um, I can enter into that, um, enter, enter into that, the more influence I will have on other people who he desperately wants to see Christ in them because that's the gospel story, the expansion of the gospel. I was talking earlier about seeds when they're little can seem like they have no potential. Well, think about this. The day of Pentecost, I referenced that a bit earlier, and we look at it as a great day, 120 people and then 3,000 people, and that's pretty spectacular. But in the scheme of the Roman Empire, frankly, it wasn't much. And 10 and 20 years later, if you look at the size of the assemblies, it really wasn't much. There wasn't a lot of reason to think that this thing can grow and develop, let alone become the mustard tree that the parable talks about but it did it did and to this very day it is the dominant i'm going to say the dominant religion i hate using the word religion but you know because a lot of christendom doesn't understand about christ but put that aside it's still the dominant mode of thought in the world today Christ's teachings I'm talking about. Okay. 
Well, Paul's obviously concerned with this church, a, a, a wonderful group of people who are you personally. I'm worried that maybe you've settled on your lees. Do you ever ask yourself the question? I do. I ask myself the question regularly. Am I settled on my lees? I don't know if you understand the process of winemaking, but I don't really, and I've got to be careful. I can do it down here. But up in um, the sunny coast, we've got a brother and a sister that worked in vineyards for years, and they really understand it. So I hope they're not listening. But as I understand it, you put the wine in a vat, and then every now and again you come and skim the impurity stuff off the top, and then you tip it into another vat, and then you let it sit, and then you skim the impurities off the top, and then you do it again and again. And the more you do it, the purer it becomes. Now, if you just leave it in the one vat, the impurities sit in the, on top of the wine and eventually permeate the wine, settled on their lees. And Jeremiah had a, a wonderful verse in the, uh, concerning the tribe of Moab. That's another story about how they were settled on their lees. They've not been moved from cup to cup. Sometimes in our life, things that are uncomfortable, moments that are uncomfortable can actually be the moments where the Lord's bringing something good through us and, and, in, and into us. Okay, let's go to um, Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. So I want to reflect now about this confidence that I'm trying to talk about in the way we approach unsafe folk. And a certain Jew named Apollos, a Jew named Apollos, was born at Alexandria. He was an eloquent man. He was mighty in the scriptures, and he came to Ephesus. So that is to say, he was mighty, very well versed in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. And the man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, uh, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Now, that doesn't mean that he was fervently filled with the Holy Ghost and fire. It means that he was fervent in spirit. He was, he was zealous. He was committed. But he only knew the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance to God. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, on whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard, they took him under them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, Aquila and Priscilla met Apollos and they listened to him and he's preaching the word and they twig straight away. He's not preaching the Holy Ghost fire. He's preaching the baptism of John. And they have two options here. They can actually withstand him and tell him, mate, you, you've, got, you've got the cart before the horse here. You're wrong. You, you've got to get your act together. Or they can take what he's got and build on it. And that's what they do. Here's a man, like so many people, they understand repentance is necessary. How many people want to try and live the Ten Commandments? I mean, just ordinary people. How many people out there actually think the Ten Commandments are pretty good? And I would suggest probably most, still. But the chances are they haven't heard the whole story. Do they really understand that at Calvary, Jesus smashed the power of sin and sickness and death? Do they really understand that Jesus is alive? Do they really understand that we can be purged or cleansed or washed from head to toe, within and without, by the Holy Ghost? With the Bible evidence, signs and wonders, healings, tongues, 
And the chances are, no, they don't. They haven't heard the whole story. So Aquila and Priscilla simply choose to tell him more fully. They complete the story. And so when we meet people that have got half the story, don't knock them for having half the story. Tell them the rest of the story. Lead. Lead them. The scripture says in Isaiah, he shall gently lead them that are with young. The scripture said in Luke 13, it's like a grain of mustard seed. If it's sown in a good heart, it'll grow. It'll grow to a good tree. It's not for us to judge the heart. If we were in the business of judging hearts, then Paul the Apostle would never have got saved because he was a ruthless, murderous fella. But God saw something in him that nobody else could see. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, just quickly, Paul writes to his young friend and protege, Timothy, verse 24. But the servant of the Lord must not strive, which is to say must not quarrel, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Patient. How many of us were a bit slow on the uptake when we heard the word of God? You know, there was a part of me deep down that suspected I was hearing the truth. But there was a part of me up here that was wrestling with this because I didn't want to hear it. At a certain level, I just wanted to go surfing. And this is going to get in my way. There was a part of me that didn't want a change to the plans I've made for my life. But there was another part deeper down that was like, but what if it's true? What if it's true? Verse 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. From time to time we meet people that are quite contrary. And yet Paul's saying to Timothy, well, in meekness instruct them. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will, because people that are aggressive or contentious or cantankerous or quarrelsome or just not hearing it, Paul's saying, folks, we've got to recognize they've, they've been taken captive alive. They've been taken captive alive. And the words that we have received, which hopefully are growing stronger and stronger in us daily, give us a confidence that we've got nothing to prove. We don't have to declare our rightness. We don't have to tell them we just won the 1500 meters. It was published all over the world. Like, we're talking about Jesus. We're not talking about us. We're talking about being washed, not about being right. Being washed brings us to a position of being right with God. Now, the interesting thing about this that really intrigues me is that Paul and Timothy traveled together a lot. They were very close. Now, you may be aware that when Paul first met Priscilla and Aquila, They'd come from Rome because of the Edict of Nero. And he met them, I think, in Corinth. And for 18 months, they lived together, worked together as tent makers. So Paul and Aquila and Priscilla and Timothy were like that. They were very close. They were part of a tight-knit group of, of this young fellowship. And the thing that I love about it is that when you take the story of Priscilla and Aquila meeting Apollos and the story of Paul instructing his young protege timothy you're getting the same attitude towards how we approach people straight there in meekness instructing even them that oppose 
finding someone that only knows half the story, lead them, expand the full story and trust. Trust the word of God to do its work. Okay, so it's creating a culture. It's, it's, it's giving us a culture of confidence. Now, confidence can only come if we also have humility. You see, there are many graces of the Christian character. If you want to see what I mean by that, go and have a read of 1 Peter chapter 1, where it talks about how we appropriate knowledge and patience and brotherly love and all of these attributes of a Christian character. In other words, any human being in whom Christ is forming and developing. And the glue of all those graces of character is humility. You see, without humility, even integrity, which is a, which is a great virtue, we all want integrity. And integrity means we're right with God without being perfect, with no pretense. But without humility, there's pretense. That means to say, without humility, integrity can become self-righteous. And that's, that's just a block. That's just a block in the road. No one's going forward on self-righteousness. Without humility, wisdom, which I'll include knowledge, becomes pompous. Have we ever known someone that's got lots and lots of knowledge, more knowledge than you, but frankly, you can't stand them. And when you think about it, it's not because you're a pill. It's because they're pompous. Who likes spending Christmas with someone that's pompous? You know, always telling us all how we got it wrong or whatever. You know what I mean. And even our zeal, which is a wonderful thing. It is a good thing to be zealously affected in, a, in always in a good thing, said Paul to the Galatian church. But zeal without humility is just downright overbearing. And we won't win souls if we're overbearing. So I want to go back to Luke 13. And I want to read the next parable. Again, two verses. And again, in verse 20, he said, Whereunto shall I like the kingdom of heaven? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until the whole was leaven. Don't let the use of the word leaven derail you here because leaven is used by Jesus as something to be avoided when it's self-righteousness, right? That's the leaven of the Pharisees. But here he's just using a plain parable from the kitchen. You put a bit of leaven in dough or whatever it is you make bread out of and it rises. My mate Norm and I tried to cook some bread in our caravan that first year in the Lord. Nobody told us much about cooking bread. All I know is it was capable of breaking your teeth. There was no leaven in it. But the beauty of leaven is it operates just silently and quietly inside. It's like the Word of God is just working quietly and within. Some people want an, an external, outward, forceful demonstration of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, well, you're not going to get that. You'll get a personal experience. You let the seed of my son's word into your heart. It will take root. It will conceive. And it will bear fruit when you are born again. 
and you let that seed continue to grow in you, you won't suffer the sort of things that people go through with self-condemnation. Well, why not? Because Jesus dealt with my sin at Calvary. We can spend a lot of time trying to live blamelessly. And the reason we spend a lot of time sometimes spending, uh, sorry, the reason we can spend time trying to live blamelessly is basically because we don't understand we've been made blameless. When we are born again, we become this new creature in Christ that Paul writes to the Corinthian church about. And that creature is undefiled because it's daily washed because of Calvary. It, it's purged by the Spirit of God. Now, that, this is not to say that I'm without fault. But if I, if I started today by saying, look, I just want you all folk to know I'm blameless, what do you reckon the overall reaction would have been? I reckon he'd have been making a move for the microphone pretty darn fast. We've made a blue here. I'll get on to Pastor John. Don't get that fella back. But folks, I'm here to tell you, you're blameless. Why are you blameless? Because of Christ Jesus. Let me use another analogy. Have you ever been in court as the accused? What? Really? None of you? Well, I came close. My mate Robert got busted using another mate's push, uh, motorbike and my license and my helmet. So the short story is we're in the Manly Magistrates Court and the police and the magistrate think they've got a wonderful case of theft and oh, whatever. they had all this stuff. The motorbike had been stolen and, and I'd willingly given him my license and, well, you know, I wasn't going to talk about that. But it was hard to defend yourself, right? It was hard to defend your mate. Now, if we were in the court of justice of life, well, we we're in the court of life, you've got the accuser of the brethren pointing the finger square at you. And the problem is you're in the accused box and deep down, deep down in your guts, no matter how good a life you've lived, you know that on some point or other, he's got you. Jesus said, if you offend in one point, you offend in all. But you also know what the idiot accuser doesn't seem to realize is that standing in front of you in the box is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then the judge looks at the accuser, looks over in your corner and just sees his son. And he doesn't even hear the trial. He just says, get out. I'm not even hearing this case because you're pointing the finger at my son. We are blameless because of Jesus who has covered us by his spirit. That's why we say to people, you must be born again of the water and of the spirit. You want to be washed? You want to be blameless? Let Jesus do it. He's made provision for it at Calvary. Let it happen. You can't make it happen. It's a bit like with the blessings that we seek in the Lord. Have you got the secret on making them happen? I've got no idea how to make them happen. You tell me what was different with Brother Noel last year on the Sunshine Coast when that thing, that big on his head just started shrinking and now there's nothing. What did anybody do different? But I tell you what you can do. You can let it happen. You can believe in the power of Calvary. You can choose what you believe about whether it's your healing, your wealth, not your wealth, your well-being. The only wealth that's important, by the way, is the wealth in here. About the power of the seed of God, about the status of our assembly, 
about the nature of our fellowship, about the, about the growth of the gospel. And, and we are part of that growth. We're part of the body of Christ. We're not forsaken. We're not abandoned. There's a scheme. There's a plan. And the plan is there by God. But sometimes we, because we've worked hard in the vineyard for a long time and we get hot and you can get a bit tired and you can take refuge under the fact, well, at least I got the right doctrine. Well, maybe you do. But as my dead mother would have once said to you, well, bully for you, Billy. What are you doing with it? Are you still in love with it? Are you still appreciative of being clean? Well, yes, I am. Yes, we are. Being clean, being sanctified, being justified because of Christ Jesus. And I have the certainty of that because of the Holy Ghost, which abides within me, which I received after a meeting one Wednesday night, leaning on my bike, a few words of prayer, a couple of hallelujahs, and boof, I was praying in a language I'd never learned before. And I knew something wonderful was flowing through me. And Jesus said, rivers of living water. If you believe, rivers of living water shall flow through you. That means, it simply means this, that you'll be a source of inspiration to other people. Now, we won't go there, but you can read it if you're so interested. Paul the Apostle was the apostle to the Gentiles. But I've been reading very carefully through the book of Acts. And every time this man goes into a new city or a town, the first place he goes, any takers on this one? First place he goes to? Synagogue. And that doesn't mean he wasn't fair income about being an apostle to the Gentiles. What it means is, even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles, even though it was, it was his brethren, the other Jewish pharisaical leaders, hated him and plotted to kill him, and had him whipped and beaten and all these sort of things, despite all that, he never gave up on them. And if you read in Romans 10, despite all that, he never lost his desire to see them saved. Brethren, my heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. So I want to finish on a similar thought by the prophet Daniel. Now, sometimes when we are overcome with a sense of, but I'm right and they're wrong, that puts a barrier between me and them. And that's the last thing I want. Now, if there's anybody that in Scripture, maybe you could say he was in a position to pray for them, I'd say it'd be Daniel. I reckon Daniel, Daniel, maybe Joseph and Daniel, the two people in the Old Testament, apart from a couple of women, who were, they're just, they don't fault themselves in their, in their life, right? So if anybody could have prayed to God concerning his people, Lord, they have sinned. He could have said that, but you read his writings. He never once said, Lord, they have sinned. He always said, Lord, we have sinned. In other words, just like Paul the Apostle, Daniel and Paul had this in common. They never distanced themselves from their people. Do we distance ourselves from our people? I'm talking about every citizen of this country. And in fact, I'm talking about every citizen of this planet. Do we distance ourselves from them or do we see there but for the grace of God go I? And I've got this heart's desire that God's put in there that I've been washed and man, being washed is a very good thing to do. And I commend it to you, Mr. Citizen or Mrs. Citizen. And Jesus is capable of doing it and you'll know when he does it because he'll fill you with the Holy Ghost. You'll speak in tongues. You'll be washed. Praise the Lord.